Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Thanks for joining us today. We are continuing our sermon series called Unstoppable, and it's based on the story of the beginning and the growth of the church. Acts, the, uh, the New Testament books of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, now last week we went over a couple of interesting things in, in, in Acts 25. Um, for example, we, we took a look at Paul's incarceration. And, and, you know, in a period of just a couple days in Jerusalem, he was, they tried to kill him three times. And, and it reminds us of, especially now that Paul is, is being tried um, in a court of law, uh, it reminds us of Jesus' words uh, in Matthew chapter 10. When Jesus said this, he said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as wise as snake and as innocent as doves. And we talked about that a little bit last week. You know, we're not to act like sheep. You know, Paul's no sheep. Paul is, is, is wise, he's prudent, he's careful, and he's very, very deliberate. And, and also we said that wolves are intentionally harmful to the sheep. It's their nature. Uh, they attack the sheep. They are destructive. Um, there's lots of wolves out there, so be wise, be prudent. Uh, the second thing we said last week was that we commented that um, Festus was sitting on what's called the judgment seat. It's called the Bema seat in Greek. And it gave us the opportunity to talk about the two judgments that everybody that's ever been alive uh, will face. They'll either face the Bema seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. Believers will face the bema seat of Jesus Christ. Everyone will give an account to Jesus of everything that they've done in their life, both good and bad. And, and this is a, not a time of, of, of retribution. Uh, nobody will be sent to hell, uh, but there will be rewards that will be given out. We'll give an account to how good of a steward uh, we've been with the things that God has given us. Uh, the other one is the great white throne judgment, and that is for believers and believers will have no excuse in this great white throne. They will know who they are and what they've done, and there'll be no hope for them at that time. Finally, uh, the last thing we talked about last week was uh, Festus, who, who, was, uh, who, who pressed Paul into what's called a, a change of venue. Now, the scriptures didn't call it that, but in legal terms, that's what it's called. And he says, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And Paul knew that there was no way that he would have a, a fair trial in Jerusalem. So Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar. So today, we're picking up where we left off and we're beginning reading in uh, Acts 25, beginning in verse 13. Now this is Paul before Agrippa and Bernice, and we'll use that as our, our title for our message today. Paul before Agrippa and Bernice. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. Uh, to them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers. 
face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such thing as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. You know, so we begin this passage of scripture and we see Festus, who's the new guy in town, this newly appointed Roman governor, and the scripture tells us that after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice, they always are together, King Agrippa and Bernice, came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So we, we meet a couple new characters, and as we've done in the past, when we meet new people in the New Testament, uh, we dig a little deeper into to who they are. So today, our, our new characters are King Agrippa and Bernice. Now, the Bible and world history often, um, and we really don't need any validation by the history books, but often we find that, uh, that they align with a far greater source of truth, and that's the Word of God. However, there are many Bible records that are further and, uh, uh, authenticated and also amplified by non-biblical records. That's why we use them. Now, this King Agrippa is King Herod Agrippa II. His great uncle was Herod Antipas, who we recognize in the Gospel accounts as the ruler who had John the Baptist killed and also the Apostle James the brother of John. Also, it was King Herod that Pontius Pilate um, had Jesus visit, and the scriptures tell us that Herod Antipas had hoped uh, Jesus would perform a miracle, uh, a kind of a magic, trip for, uh, magic trick for him. Uh, but the patriarch, this Herod, the patriarch Herod, the founder of this Herodian dynasty, and Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Now this is the king who ruled at the time of Jesus' birth. That the wise men came to inquire, you know, where the, the king of the Jews would be born. And subsequently, subsequently Herod the Great uh, went in a rage and he murdered all the children in Bethlehem in an effort to kill Jesus, the newborn king that had been born in, in Bethlehem. Uh, kind of interesting history, isn't it? Well, I like history. I hope you do too. Now actually, we're going to come to Bernice. So hang on to your history uh, books because uh, Bernice is quite a character. Um, it was Agrippa and Bernice that came to, from Jerusalem to visit this new governor, Festus. Now Agrippa and Bernice, they come together and they reign together uh, pretty much as King Agrippa and Queen Bernice, although that was not her official title. And the reason was is they were not married. Bernice was actually Agrippa's sister. And it was more than just a rumor that this brother-sister relationship was also incestuous. They lived together as a married couple. Their relationship was actually an open scandal. And in fact, Agrippa never did take a wife. Bernice was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I, which makes her a sister of King Herod Agrippa II. 
Now, by, by age 16, get this, by age 16, um, she had already married twice. Uh, when she married her, her uncle, another Herod, who was much older than her, uh, but that enabled her to be a queen. However, by the time she was 22, this older uncle Herod had died, her husband. And now she was a widow, and she, uh, she picked up with this relationship with her brother Agrippa. This brother Agrippa would not be her last political love interest, however. In a few years, the great general Titus would be sent by Rome to Jerusalem to put down the Jewish revolt, called, actually called the First Jewish-Roman War, and it began in 66 AD. Now, she began a love affair with this general Titus, now, and Titus would ultimately destroy Jerusalem completely with the help of Agrippa and his army. Um, and this Titus would become Caesar. He would take the name and the emperor and Caesar, Titus Flavius Vespanius. So according to legend, Bernice returned to Rome with Titus. But when she, he was made emperor, the Senate made Titus uh, vow to, uh, to, uh, to leave Bernice. Uh, apparently, there were many that were concerned that Bernice was just another Cleopatra, and that would lead to the ultimate downfall of Titus. So before we return to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 25, I want to give you an update as well, as long as we're talking about history, on the two characters that had left Paul in prison for two years. If you remember, their names were Felix and Drusilla. That was the previous chapter. And as you recall, it was Felix and Drusilla that spent time with the Apostle Paul. And Paul spoke to them about Jesus Christ. He told them of the resurrection of the dead and the opportunity of forgiveness through Jesus. He spoke about the coming judgment. And the scripture said that Felix trembled when Paul talked of judgment. But they never made a commitment. They sent Paul back to prison cell or their room uh, or his prison room until it was more convenient. But here's the historical update. And I got this this week as I was doing further research on, on Agrippa. Uh, the, uh, after Felix was demoted and was sent back to Rome along with Drusilla, the family, this is the entire family, settled in a small but beautiful village on Mount Vesuvius the village was called Pompeii. The family was there in 79 AD, and you might be getting ahead of me. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted and completely buried all of the citizens of Pompeii. History records that, that um, Drusilla, along with her children, were killed, and we can only assume that Felix was likely killed as well. So much for the end of this political family. So let's go back to the verses that I read earlier. Verse 13 said that it was a few days later, meaning very early in the reign of Governor Festus, King Agrippa and Bernice arrive in Caesarea to pay respects to the new governor. Now, Governor Festus is the Roman governor. He's actually the ruler. King Agrippa, also known as Herod Agrippa II, he didn't rule over much of the territory. He was a great influence because the emperor gave him the right to oversee the affairs of the temple in Jerusalem. And remember, Jerusalem was the, the actual capital of that area. So uh, um, uh, what, um, what Herod was able to do was to appoint the high priest 
who was the de facto leader of the Jewish people. Now Paul will soon appear before King Agrippa, but this is just really an informal hearing. It's really not a trial. Agrippa did not have any jurisdiction in the matter. Uh, David Jeremiah, one of my favorite pastors, says this. He says, Agrippa II had more of a figurehead role in Jerusalem, and as the procreator of the temple, he had great knowledge of Jewish customs. He was actually subordinate to Festus in, in power and authority, serving as a consultant of sorts to the Romans on all things Jewish. Now, Scripture tells us that Festus laid out Paul's case before the king. Remember that Festus was new to his post and likely unfamiliar with the Jewish traditions and customs. He was likely confused by Paul's case. Therefore, even though there was not enough evidence to convict Paul, he continued his investigation. Now, the main reason the case was confusing to Festus is because Paul had done no wrong. This was enough reason for an acquittal, except Festus wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jewish rulers. So he kept Paul in prison and tried to gather more information. So in these verses we read, Festus discusses Paul's case with Agrippa, laying out before him so he could get his opinion on it. Now in this process, Paul is described by, uh, by Festus in, in four, uh, actually five ways. First, he, Paul is left as a, a prisoner. Paul, as a prisoner, lives out a paradox that often persecution will bring for the Christian. Though he's innocent, he's treated like a criminal. He's in bonds, and he doesn't have his freedom. Secondly, Paul was opposed, yet protected. Uh, if it wasn't clear before, it's now crystal clear that these Jewish leaders wanted a change in venue so that they could kill Paul either through ambush or riot or Roman justice. They want to put Paul to death. Third, Paul was tried, but no punishable charges resulted. And again, the reason for that is because Paul was innocent. Festus, with customary efficiency, convened the court. We said that was the Bema seat that he sat on, the judgment seat. Evidently, Festus has included that there is nothing to the sedition charges. And the sedition charges are really, that's, the, that's an enemy of the state. Those are the only charges that Rome would really be interested in um, if Paul was accused of that and would be found guilty. Now, now, fourth, the main point of the dispute, and I love this, we find out that the main point of the dispute, Festus says, is a dead man named Jesus. Praise the Lord. A dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. That's verse 19. You know, the phrasing reveals Festus's attitude towards Christ's resurrection, and he, he doesn't even know it, but he communicates the prominent role it actually played in this entire, this entire ordeal. Remember we said this is really about Jesus on trial. Jesus on trial. It isn't so much Paul. Anytime there's persecution, Jesus said, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The servant is not any greater than the master. But it's really all about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Fifth, that Paul was offered a change in venue, but instead he appealed to to, uh, to Caesar. That was the last verse we read last year. Now, Festus was uh, at a loss. Uh, the way that Luke describes Paul's request for both an appeal, it's also an appeal for, um, not only to, to Caesar, but a, a request for protection. Roman citizens had the right to a fair trial, and they were to be protected, uh, protected from their accusers until that trial could be held. 
Finally, Festus finishes telling the story, and with some curiosity, possibly disdain, King Agrippa says he would like to hear the person. You know, it's certain that Agrippa had heard of Jesus. If, if he knows everything Jewish and he's living in Jerusalem, he knows all about Jesus, even if he not heard of Paul. So let's continue. Verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with you, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. <laughs> that last verse. It seems unreasonable to Festus to send a prisoner to to Caesar without having any charges. I would think so. Okay, so we start off this section with some interesting words. It says, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp. This is the king and the queen, actually uh, the brother and sister team. And how, how ironic is this? I mean, think about it. We already know too much about Agrippa and Bernice. Uh, they are political animals. They're fixated on power. They're the living personification of what the apostle talks about in his letter to Timothy in the last days. He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. This summarizes these two people, Agrippa and Bernice. Now, if you recall just last week with Felix, we said that while Paul was supposedly on trial, it was really Felix that was on trial. So in the midst of all of this pomp and pageantry, who is really on trial here? Well, it's really Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. And the rest of them, they're all on trial before God because Paul is preaching, and Paul is not really on trial here. It's Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? That's the, that's the question. Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus asked Peter and the apostles. And that's the same question that is coming up here. Who do they say Jesus is? They're going to have enough information to be able to make a determination for their own selves. Now, we actually saw, uh, it was interesting, Festus says, Festus has, you can see that he is frustrated because he actually says this in verse 26. He says, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord, meaning Caesar, concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him, that's Paul, before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. Festus doesn't even know what he's supposed to write about Paul. What is he actually accused of? He doesn't know what to say. He's hoping that King Agrippa may be able to explain this issue between Paul and the high priest, the Jewish religious leaders, so that he has something to write to his Lord, and that's Caesar. Now, Festus indicates in the last verse, uh, verse 27, it says, For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Well, it would. It would be unreasonable because there's really no actionable charges against Paul. Paul is innocent, except Paul is being persecuted 
for his faith. Nevertheless, we say that this will become a defining moment. And now, a defining moment not only for Paul, but for all of those involved. Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. And we'll see that as we get into the next chapter. Now, for all of us, we all understand defining moments that forever change the identity, the destination of not only one individual, but sometimes a number of individuals, a, a movement, sometimes even a, a nation. You know, for our family, there was a time about 25 years ago. I was actually working for Ford Motor Company at the time. I had done international work. I'd spent some time in Europe. And an offer came to me to move myself and my family for an extended period of time to Mexico, the country, and to live in Mexico City. Now, our children at the time were in high school. And it would mean moving them out of their high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we were, uh, to Mexico City. So I remember very well that we, we called a family meeting with the, with the kids, my wife and I. We knew what was going on, but they didn't. They needed to know. And the thing is, in our family, we never had family meetings. The only time we had a family meeting is when dad was getting a promotion, dad was getting a job. Uh, there was going to be a transfer. We were going to move to some other state, uh, possibly out of the country. So they came together and they were, they were a little bit nervous, both my son and my daughter. And they were both high school students at the time. My daughter wanted to, to go to live in a big city. Pittsburgh was a little small for her. She, she had lived in Chicago and Detroit and she, want, she liked big cities. Um, so I said, okay, Heather, you're getting your wish. You're, we're moving to a big city. And my son uh, wanted to move down south. He wasn't a real fan of the snow, so he wanted to move south. And I said, Adam, you're getting your wish as well. We're moving to Mexico City. Well, I, I say this because we did. And you can imagine that was a, a significant defining moment in our, our family. Our, our children finished high school in Mexico. And to this day, it's impacted them because uh, both of them have married uh, classmates. Both of them have married um, uh, students that they went to. And as a result, our grandchildren are, are Mexican-Americans. Both my daughter-in-law and my son-in-law are Mexican-Americans. So it's changed our life. It was a defining moment. But that's not the only one. I mean, there's all kinds of defining moments. Defining moments are often truth moments. Think of it this way. In the Bible, we see Moses and the burning bush. A definite defining moment. In Exodus 3, God calls out to him from the bush. He says, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A defining moment, uh, for sure. In the Old Testament, the story of Naomi and Ruth. I love that story, Naomi and Ruth. In Ruth chapter 1, Ruth says this. She says, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. When, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. A, defin a definitive moment for, for Naomi, or Ruth. Paul, then Saul, on the road to Damascus, in chapter 9 of Acts, it says, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul was a Pharisee. He was the persecuting Christians. God calls out to him on the road to Damascus. Then, then Jesus says, it's hard to kick against the goads. Remember the woman at the well. This is in John chapter 4. Uh, the woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah, uh, that's called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus answered, I who speak to you am he. A defining moment. 
Here's a sad one, still a defining moment. The young, rich, rich young ruler who, who came uh, to Jesus and, and talked with him but decided not to follow Jesus. Uh, this is in Mark 10. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've done since I was a, a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved this man and said, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. They'll come follow me. Then the young man heard that command. He went away grieving because he had many possessions. You know, this is the only person ever in the New Testament that was asked to follow Jesus that decided not to. Truly a defining moment for this unfortunate person. You know, many of you have come through defining moments like this and made a decision for Christ. Now, this is really not a decision to join a religion or accomplish something in particular, but actually to, to make a decision for Christ, did you know it's actually a decision to surrender? Have you ever wondered why Je what did Jesus really do when he went to the cross that day to die for our sins and the sin of all mankind? Jesus fully surrendered his entire being, his entire life to God the Father in order to, com to complete God's perfect will for his life here on the earth. It was God's perfect will that he would go to the cross and die for the sin of mankind. And Jesus was willing to fully surrender every part of his being and every part of his earthly life to God the Father to complete that divine call. Now this is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 and other places that unless you are willing to forsake all, and follow him, you cannot truly become one of his disciples. Now, what does it mean to forsake all? It basically means that you're willing to surrender your life to God. We agree with the Gospels that we can't do this possibly on our own, that God has a better plan for us. Actually, it's a perfect plan, and that we've decided to allow his perfect will and his plan for our life rather than our own. Now, if you haven't ever surrendered to God, and you never said, Lord, I believe that you died for my sin and the sins of the world, that you rose from the dead, that you're coming back again. If you've never done that, would you join me today in prayer as we close? Let, let's pray together. Father, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we'll, we believe in our heart that God... You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.